Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Kleiber, your host, and with me today is Caleb Wells. Hey, y'all. Hey, Caleb. How's that new YouTube channel doing? It's a lot of fun. I have I have two subscribers. <laughs> so, hey, you know, one you got to start somewhere. I think why? why is one and my wife is the other one. So, okay. <laughs> well, after we're done here, I'll make it three. All right. Cool. <laughs> All right. And why? How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Yourself? Good, good. It's almost the shortest day of the year for us here. So, you must be dead of summer. Yeah, it's getting starting to get hot. It's nice, actually. This year hasn't been too hot. So, we've had a few good, few good days. Been to the beach and things like that. So, nice. No yeah, fires? Uh, not yet, I think. Um, I think other states have started to have fires. But I think it, cause we, we've, gone, we've got that La Nina thing now. So, I think it might be better this year. Fingers crossed. So. Yeah, definitely fingers crossed. Hurricane yeah. season ended last week for us, so. Oh, yeah. Really? I so guess, there's I no... Guess, well, officially, right? I mean, anything can happen, but, and, you know, officially we're off the hook until next year. 2020 so how many hurricanes did you get in the end? It was 30-something. It was it, it was a record, like an all-time record, so. But, and uh, it's been in the 30s here this week in New Orleans, which is cold for us. I mean, that's cold, so it's been nice. Right, so cool. that snow that on minus <laughs> minus zero is uh, yeah, thir- thirty two is uh, Fahrenheit zero Celsius. It snows in New Orleans like once every ten years, and it doesn't stick. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Well, I think we're going to welcome back to the podcast yeah. our friend that everybody loves, John Skeet. Hey, hey John. John. Hey, nice to be here. I'm I'm slightly tempted to. Uh, to sort of say, hey Galen, I've been listening to so many 538 podcasts that Claire Malone saying, hey Galen, is just sort of embedded in my, you know, when someone says, hey, you say, hey Galen. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. But mm. well, well, th- Thanks me. for coming I, back. That's fine. Yeah. Do you want to move off the individual contributor track and onto the management track? Maybe you want to become a director of engineering or CTO. Let me help. I'm starting a program to help developers move up in their careers using proven techniques and by starting a podcast in order to advance. Right now, I'm only scheduling calls to see where you're at and where you want to go and how you can get there. I'm not doing any sales pitches, just talking to you about where you're at. You can schedule that call at devchat.tv slash next level. Glad to have you on. Yeah, that was such a good time we had last time. We even split it into two. It was so much fun. So, in other words, you couldn't get me to shut up. There's a difference, you know. It's I know what you mean. No, we we would actually appreciate that. We would have just cut it out all out and not published it if it was that bad. But (laughs) all right. So, what should we talk about today? I think. How about C sharp and how people abuse it? Mm -hmm. Okay. I should probably start with a confession because I suspect people may be expecting us to talk about cool stuff in C sharp nine. Um. And this is a shocking confession. I really haven't played with C Sharp 9 properly yet. I tried one of the previews before it had record types, and it was like, I'm waiting for record types, and it doesn't have it yet, so I'm just going to put it away. And I really should have been playing. I should have been writing the fifth edition of C Sharp in depth, which has to happen at some point, so I'm going to have to learn C Sharp 9 really well. But I just haven't looked yet. So I'm looking forward to trying to abuse C Sharp 9, but... If that's what you're here for, folks, uh, you won't get it from me. Maybe one of the other folks will have you know, all the experience, but I don't. So yet. no, 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 playing around with record types yet, huh? Yeah, not yet. I mean, I've been waiting for them for a long time. I'm really looking forward to seeing how they work, how they're extensible, how the withers work, etc. Yeah, you know, I've I've seen kind of what they're about, but I haven't had my fingers on them trying to do weird and wonderful things with them. Cool. So let's let's abuse C sharp eight then. Yeah, well, I mean, we should probably give a little bit of background as to why we're coming in with the let's abuse C sharp. <laughs> so there's a talk that I used to give, and I'm sure I will again, but I I haven't done it for quite a while, where I basically abuse C sharp language features in a way you know, anyone can write bad code. That's fairly easy. What I was trying to do was write code that is clever which should ring warning bells to everyone. You know, clever code is never a good thing. Write code that is clever, uses C-sharp language features sort of to the utmost as far as I possibly can, so that your chances of understanding them are kind of small anyway, and you end up looking at it and thinking, 
do I like that or not? I probably don't, but oh, oh, there's there's something nice about it. I you know, trying to straddle that line of awful and fun at the same time. And it's certainly a talk that I have given several times, always enjoyed giving it. And despite, you know, I, I say at the start of the talk, you will not learn anything useful in this talk because you know, people want to know they, they're at a conference or whatever. It's like, how am I going to split my day up so I learn the most I possibly can? And yeah, if you want that, this talk is absolutely not for you. It's it's all about having fun, you know, maybe learning some details of the language, but definitely not to apply them in the ways that I apply them. So this this is about like anti-patterns or how, um, how is it? How is it? Do you consider, what do you consider abuse? Right. So let's go for operator overloading to start with. You know, you've got Link. Now, Link has the, the query expression format and the sort of just standard method calls. And out of interest, I, I would be interested to know whether listeners use query expressions much. I find myself almost always just writing you know, dot where, dot to list, dot select, or whatever, and very rarely end up using query expressions. I do find they're great if you ever need to do a join or something like that, but usually I'll just use methods and text. But you know, you look at even a query expression, and there are so many characters, you know, from and where, that's a whole five characters. Why can't we just use the pipe character to mean you know, well, that's kind of like a selection, isn't it? Or maybe the and character, and that can do some filtering. Um, so I wrote a link to operators implementation, which was basically take every possible operator you can, every operator that you can overload, and make it do something, and make it do the weirdest possible thing you can. So I was very aware that Eric Lippert, the great Eric Lippert, has said that you know being able to overload the plus the unary plus operator. So that's where just like you can write sort of int x equals plus five, and that just means five really. It's kind of just for symmetry with the unary minus operator being able to write int x equals minus five. If you've got a time span t, you can write time span neg t neg t equals minus t and so that's the unary minus operator, and that's kind of useful. Eric Lippert claimed that the unary plus operator was never useful, so I decided to prove him wrong by making it do something. And I seem to remember it was doing something that was wholly awful to do. And it would, something like, it would take your query so far, and there are three different modes that it can take. And each time you applied the unary plus operator, it would change the mode subtly, or just weird and wonderful stuff. We can put a link to the, the code for all of this. It's all on GitHub. We'll put a link in the show notes and you know, knock yourself out having a look at it. Come up with your own weird things. So you know, we have the, um, the bitwise negation operator, the tilde. And it's like, well, that's kind of wibbly wobbly. Maybe that should just take a random element from the sequence. You know, that sort of, this is kind of fun to do, but absolutely not something you would want anywhere near production code. So. It's that sort of abuse. I'm actually looking at your GitHub repo now under linked operators, and I really like the name for a dark enumerable. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's a, it hints at scary, right? And yes. Not something yes, you, not where you want to go. Definitely. So that, that was one amusing aspect of the abusing C-sharp talk. Um, the other one that I particularly enjoy is there's a piece of code that I can show you won't necessarily be able to see everything in it because one of the characters within it is a, a non-printable character. But in theory, at least, that code, how that code behaves depends on the compiler you're using, not the compiler version in terms of, you know, is this C-sharp 2, is this C-sharp 3, but the compiler version in terms of which version of Unicode it's using. Because there's this amazing character called the Mongolian Vowel Separator, and it has changed... Now, I will probably get this wrong, but it's something like, you know, the, the spirit of this will be right. It's something like in Unicode 2, it was classified as a formatting character. In Unicode 3, it was classified as white space. And in Unicode 4, it's back to a formatting character. Now, the C-sharp specification says, well, a formatting character can be part of an identifier. So if you have two words, that are so, sort of separated by this Mongolian vowel separator, and then equals 10, then 
that could be the declaration of a variable and an assignment to the value of the value 10, or it could just be an assignment of an existing field if it's all as one identifier. And in theory, depending on which version of the C-sharp compiler you use, because that has changed which version of Unicode it says it complies with, it should do different things. As it happens, I've never managed to find a compiler that treats it as a white space character, I think. I have looked, and I'd hoped that one version of Mono might do it. But uh, yeah, so that's the sort of level of evil weirdness that I particularly yeah, That sounds enjoyed. like it's a horrible prank you could be putting into your... Um development team <laughs> like, yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> it's, it's, it actually uh, it makes me think of that apple messaging hack where if you sent someone a unicode character i forget the certain character it would com completely crash their their phone <laughs> right you know stuff you don't want to do it's it's interesting right. that you can do it but uh not something you want to do and in this in case it's production. not because it was a bug it's because yeah if the specification sounded reasonable, we will abide by Unicode 2 or whatever. And each individual version of Unicode spec was fine. It's when you put them together that it all yeah, gets really weird. I love the bugs yeah. that are absolutely by yeah. design and you can't pinpoint what's wrong other than the overall result just uh, ends up being a bit horrible. Uh, so so how do you find things like this? I don't understand. Like, <laughs> So in this particular case, I first heard about the Mongolian vowel separator because someone called Vladimir Reshetnikov was part of the ECMA C-sharp standardization group, working group, which I convene. I'm the sort of chair, as it were, which is mostly that, that way it keeps me out of the technical decisions a bit more. I need to organize people rather than make technical decisions, which is definitely for the best. But Vladimir is able to find weird and wonderful problems in all kinds of things. And I think this was one of his observations. And I've certainly learned of all kinds of weird things about the C-sharp spec via that, that group. Because you know it's got some of the brightest minds in C-sharp. So you know, you've got Mance Torgerson, designer, Neil Gafter has worked on huge amounts of the compiler, etc. So when you say, oh, I think this change, you know, this change would make the spec a lot simpler. And then Neil Gafter will come up with a, an example saying, ah, yes, but this is technically valid and would be invalid under your change. Therefore, you are potentially breaking code. It's like, but no one's going to have that code. It would still be a breaking change. We don't make breaking changes. So yeah, there are there are so many weird and wonderful little things. It's great. <laughs> so those are, that's kind of some weird ways to abuse C-sharp. Is there ways that people do it on a daily basis that just kind of irritates you or <laughs> well they use datetime.now which is you know i think that counts as abuse but you know that's um, <laughs> that's uh, that's probably a whole different show did we did we cover dates and times in the last show i can't remember yeah we went a little bit into, into to note time, time a little bit like yeah, yeah yeah so should so, we go through you know, the code for note time and see how not to abuse things so yeah and if you if you want to not abuse date time stuff then i would in my entirely biased opinion, suggest using Node Time, and it will help you to think more clearly and avoid writing untestable code and and things like that. But I don't know whether I'd say that I see people abusing stuff in C Sharp. That people do things wrong, like using the result of the result property from task or calling wait on a task, which can be. You know, if you look at some of the code that I work on professionally, we do that in very, very, very specific places where we know it's safe to do or as safe as we can possibly make it. Whereas if you're doing that within a UI thread or something, then, hey, you can deadlock yourself. It used to be that when two, when you talked about deadlock, it was two threads that were both competing for the same lock or, or had you know, an inner and an outer lock. But no, tasks let you deadlock within one thread by saying, I will wait for the result of this task but that task needs to come back to the thread that I have now waited for until that, yeah. So, you know, there are, there are definitely some common mistakes in C-sharp, but I don't think I would count those as abuses generally. There is one interesting bit where I, I tend to ask audiences whether they think something is an abuse or not, and I believe it is available in at least some libraries, possibly including a Microsoft one, which is to do with interpolated string literals. So that's the, the string literal with the dollar at the front where you can put stuff in braces. And hopefully all listeners are familiar with uh, SQL injection attacks 
And, you know, you never put values into SQL. You always use parameters because otherwise SQL injection and look at XKCD and little body tables. And if none of this makes sense, then, you know, stop listening now, search for SQL injection, read all of that. And frankly, you'll learn far more than you will by listening to me for the next however, however long. Um, but assuming you do know, know about SQL injection, anything with interpolated strings looks like it's horribly broken. You sort of think, well, yeah, that's really readable. Being able to write, you know, select ID comma name from users where UID equals and then braces UID as the variable. There are ways in which you can make that not a SQL injection attack via. You know, I've now forgotten the the exact name. It's something like String Format Builder. We can find the exact name, but interpolated string literals the type in the C-sharp spec isn't string. It's just, well, this is an interpolated string, uh, string literal, and it is convertible into formatted string builder, formatable string builder, something like that, whichever one it is. It's convertible to that or to string. And if you use it with var, then it will use string. And if you convert it to a formatable string builder, then it captures the, it converts the, the C-sharp compiler finds the little placeholders within braces and converts those into 0, 1, 2, et cetera, keeps whatever you've got after the colon with, you know, this is the, the format string part, the, the how you're going to format that bit, and then separates that out from the values of the variables, much like a SQL parameter would do. So it's entirely possible to write a method you know, you've got your database client class. And if you write a method that accepts a formatable string builder, you can then say, okay, I will format the format string that's got all these braces in and replace those placeholders with at p0, at p1, at p2, and then convert the values into regular SQL parameter things. So you can end up with code that looks really nice and is a really readable way of embedding values within a string or within a string literal. Just seeing chat, it's not string builder. I will find a link. It's not formatable string builder, it's just formatable string. But you can end up with this formatable string that is safe to use. You can use safely and it looks nice in source form and it converts to nice SQL with parameters and the values are separated out from the, from the SQL itself and you get all the benefits. So those all sound like really good things. The trouble is all it takes, unless you've got really good protections involved, all it takes is for someone to say, oh, well, I don't like having the variable, I don't like having the string directly in the method call. I'll write string X equals and then just move stuff up as, an, as if it, that were refactoring, but changing from formatable string to string is radically changing the behavior. So if you've also got an overload of the same method that just accepts a string, then goodbye all your protection. And it means that you know, if you, even if you do protect people, um, you probably need to introduce this library to every new developer and say, look, I know this looks terrible, but really we know about SQL injection. So. You know, do you write something that lets you write code that looks readable, but you have to have insider knowledge before you can know that it's safe? You can know what it means. You can know what effect it will achieve, but be a bit worried about it without knowing the library involved. And once you know what's going on behind the scenes, you can be confident in it. That's all great. When you're not confident and you're thinking, oh, maybe this is going to do SQL injection attacks, and then you start building a string with parameters and parameterizing it yourself manually, and then it's really, yeah, that's a mess. So you know, it's one of those things, I kind of like it, but equally, I kind of don't at the same time. It would be quite nice if there was some alternative form of string literal that only converted to formatable string so that you could never assign a string directly from it. And you would then know that if you're using this, then something's going to do something interesting with it. You know, use the same compiler infrastructure, but but do something slightly different with it. There's times when I wish analyzers would sometimes do a little bit more of the, are you sure you know what you're doing here? 
you know, like you talked about with using dot result on task or wait, it's like, you know, are you sure this is what you want to do? And then maybe have some links out to, you know, reasons why you're, why you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. When it works, that's fine. When it doesn't, it's annoying. So I recently uh, created a pull request for Node Time and hat tip to Malcolm Rowe, friend of mine who reviewed this 26 or 27 commit PR that all it did was fix FX cop warnings. I'd had a bug report from, as it happened, someone in Microsoft who was using their own fork of Node Time, which is kind of an interesting thing to start with. And it was tripping up an FX cop rule. Now, bizarrely, the current version of FXCOP does not trip that rule because there was a bug in FXCOP. So as a result of this bug being filed against NodaTime, I filed a bug against FXCOP saying, hey, this, this doesn't trip the rule, but it should. Even though I don't believe in the rule anyway, it's a, it's a, the rule it violates claims to be a significant security thing. And it would be in some cases, but in other cases, like in the NodaTime case, it's absolutely fine. So you know, it's not that when it did trip, it was a false po positive in terms of the rule firing when it shouldn't. It's just that the rule is quite broad and assumes you don't know what you're doing. So and this is around public types shouldn't implement virtual uh, internal interfaces because you can end up with external code implementing those interfaces without knowing it's doing so. Well, in this case, no, it's really without knowing it's doing so. There are abstract methods that I've said, you know, you need to do this. And if you don't, well, you don't. And that's, it's calling external code with all the pros and cons of, of doing so. And it's to do with time zone calculations. We're not trusting the result of this in anything else internally other than, hey, it's a time zone calculation. If you want to provide a broken time zone implementation, you're welcome to do so. Um, if someone depends on that for security purposes, then I'm okay with that. That's not really Node Time's fault. So yeah, it's it's like accepting an I enumerable. Ah, well, that that allows someone to write an I enumerable that when you start to iterate it, uh, iterate over it, it makes your computer explode. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> there comes a point at which you you've got to accept that sometimes you're going to run external code, otherwise it's impossible to do anything. So yeah, that that was an interesting example, all the other rules, the, the other 27 commits or however many, were fixing one FX cop rule at a time or one sort of group of them. And I would say about half the time I actually made a code change and it was worth doing. The other half, I suppressed the warnings because I didn't really agree with them. So there were, you've got a public exception and it doesn't have the three public constructors that we expect it to. It's like, yeah, because I don't want you to be able to construct a an invalid. Uh, there was something around, this is a, an ambiguous time exception, that's it, where you're trying to convert a local date and time to an instant in time, and it's ambiguous. You know, 1.30 in the morning, that happens twice. Well, I absolutely want you to have to pass in the two occurrences and the time zone or whatever information it is. I don't want to have a parameterless constructor or a constructor with just a message because you should be giving that information. So, you know, I appreciate these conventions, but I also appreciate that they're only conventions, they're not hard and fast rules. So everything, I'm fine with there being these tools and they're useful, but there's always got to be a fairly easy way of turning them off, which there is in FXCOP. You can, you can disable the warnings easily enough. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow 
because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresin.net.com slash Raygun. It, uh, it actually makes me think of ReSharper's on. Uh, I have a coworker who uses ReSharper, and we have the, the little comments to ignore certain things for ReSharper scattered what? throughout the code. Uh, you know, so, you know, on one hand, they can make your life easier and catch mistakes. On the other hand, maybe they're trying to hold your hand a little too much. And I having those suppression comments is okay so long as they're reasonably sparse. But by the time you've got more suppression than there is actual business code, it's a real, you know, that's a significant negative. That's a For problem. Time, yeah. it's, it's kind of okay. I try to make the code as readable as possible, of course, but realistically, I know that the number of people who will actually read any individual bit of code is probably less than 10, frankly. It's, I will be the person reading it most, then maybe Matt Pint or Pint Johnson or Malcolm Rowe. Chances are no one else will ever read it. Who knows? Yeah. So I don't mind having having a few more in there than than I would otherwise. I'm curious, you know, just an aside, how often do uh, time zone rules get changed? First, I want to issue a slight correction for, on behalf of Matt. It's Matt Johnson Pint, not Pint Johnson. Uh, sorry, Matt, Braino. Matt, great guy, Maggie. <laughs> also great. Sorry, how often do rules change? It was interesting. This year, I think we're on 2020D, I want to say. I can find that out. It is, we are currently on 2020D. And the the reason it's a bit weird this year is we had a long time with no changes within 2020. So the first, you know, we had 2020A was in April. And then there were no more changes until October. So on October the 8th, we had 2020B. Then on October the 17th, we had 2020C. And on October the 22nd, we had 2020D. So that's um, three releases within a fortnight, which I think is the, the densest sort of set of buses as time zone changes that we've ever had that I, since I've been working on time zones anyway. Um, is that is that common to have that many uh, no it's, international it's times on changes? It's when governments happen to decide things. I think one of them may have been affixed to the previous one. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> uh, I don't remember. Um, well, I'm, I'm hoping we can simplify this when a lot of places go to full time, you know, year round daylight savings time. I don't think that will simplify. It's not like the number of changes to the rules depends on how many whether there are changes to the offset. So we could all be observing daylight saving time and there still be changes, or we could all be saying, okay, no daylight saving time ever. And there could still be changes because people are changing standard time offset. So yeah, there, I guess. Then I you're guess just dealing with, less... you're dealing with offsets. You're not dealing with when does the, the offset change, right? Yeah, but that's still, the rule tells you when it will change forever. So I, I guess if it if it weren't changing ever then, or weren't changing on a regular basis, then it would be unlikely that you would change you know, the regularity of it. But I, I think there will be changes for quite a while still. Yeah. Um, I'm still waiting to see whether the EU, the European Union, decides to go on to permanent daylight saving time. And also whether, if they do, does the United Kingdom follow suit, which personally I hope that it does. And I also hope that all of this happens with a significant amount of head head start, you know, letting people know beforehand, notice period. I don't think it's entirely infeasible that post-Brexit, there will be some people who say, okay, well, the EU is changing how it deals with time zones, we should do something different to the EU just to show that we can now that we've left the European Union. I think that would be a mistake, personally. <laughs> but, but hey, well, so it, uh, it definitely keeps your code from getting stale. Mm. 
Well, I mean, hopefully your your code shouldn't need to change, but it would keep you on your toes in terms of it may make people think, where do I get my time zone data from? How do I know whether it's up to date? So uh, you know, if you're using an old version of Java 8 and the EU time zones change, how easily do you know how to update your time zone database on all your production machines? I suspect that many people do, and I suspect that many other people don't. And on Windows, would you know, you know, do you know when your Windows machine last got an update to its time zone database? I don't, and I'd be more likely to than most, I guess. You know, these days, it used to happen only twice yearly. I believe it now is capable of happening more often, but it's all a bit sort of hidden. One of the things I'm proud of in Node Time is, you know, we do a, a new release as soon as the time zone database comes out, and we also make a file available on the Node Time website, as well as something saying what the current version is. So, in fact, the vast, vast majority of the Node Time website traffic is applications pinging a particular URL that says, "Yep, the latest version is 2020D," and they'll be saying. That's okay. I've already got that, and then they'll wait a, another hour or whatever. Um, there are enough of these that we get several calls of that per second. You know, only several, not not several thousand or anything. But uh, if they detect those, are presumably applications that if they detect there is a change, they will then download the new data and start using it transparently, or maybe you know, save it and restart themselves or tell the user that they need to restart because actually doing stuff dynamically can be quite difficult if you've got dependency injection and you've already injected the data, as it were. It's fine to detect that the data is now wrong, but you need a way of working out what to do next and telling the user they need to restart the application soon is probably as good as it gets. So yeah, there you go. I'm pleased with the fact that we've made those versioning decisions front and center. We haven't necessarily made them easy. We don't provide code that automatically pings the Node Time website and does stuff for you automatically because everyone's going to have different different things they need to do. But by saying, hey, you ought to be aware of this and here's here's the different components that you can play with. You know, here's the URL to hit to find out what the latest version is. And then it gives you the URL that you should download, and here's how you can build a new date time zone provider with that new version. I'm proud of giving people the tools to do the right thing. Yeah, it was about a month ago that we were looking at the uh, the crazy time zone in Australia that Wyatt deals with, and we just said, okay, we should just all go to UTC time. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, and by that we mean one time for the whole con- for the right, whole world. Yeah. So everybody's UTC zero. Yes. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if anyone's going to be happy with that. It would be me. You know, I'm generally <laughs> in UTC plus zero, but it feels, given with my diversity hat on, it doesn't feel like it's treating the whole world the same, and telling people that they need to be, you know, just suck it up that midday is three o'clock in the morning or you know three a.m. Yeah. I would be very happy if, over time, all countries abandoned daylight saving time changes and just said, okay, we're now UTC plus five or whatever. I think that would make sense. And I don't see the benefits of daylight saving changes, and they certainly cause a huge amount of chaos. But I, I don't think going as far as UTC for everyone is is the way forward. Um, well, Hopefully, you know, if you can educate people at the same time as you say, right, we're abandoning daylight saving time. If anyone wants to know what time you are, just say, I'm UTC plus five, and that will always be right from now on. That's great. <laughs> and we would get, you know, everyone would be comfortable enough saying, well, you're UTC plus five, I'm UTC plus three. That means you're two hours ahead of me. I can do that arithmetic myself. I think people aren't good, good enough at math to be able to do that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I, well, and, I still and I get see confused how as soon as the clocks go forward or back. I don't know. Uh. Well, I was going to say for, for normal people, right? I can see UT0 everywhere being a problem. For developers, it would make our lives a whole heck of a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. 
And yeah. if we could just tell every culture in the world to stick to ASCII at the same time, that, that would make our lives easier as well. Um, right. It's right. not the most in, respectful of different cultures. In imperial measurements, right? <laughs> oh, dear, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and pre-decimalization money in the UK. <laughs> what time zone is it in space? So it isn't. I could imagine. Like the space station or... So, well, the space station, I don't know whether the space station is in a geostationary orbit or, or, no, it's or not. what. Right. No, it's okay. Not. I don't know. I just, it must, it must it just, just popped in my head. Yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. So I don't know what they do. I guess one that sort of relates to the whole. What of course, airlines the, do a different thing too, don't they? Airlines tend to refer to. I mean, well, when they they're in the air. The source yeah. and then the. Um, and then the destination. And I think as soon as you're in the air, you start talking about the, uh, you start talking in local time of destination over air traffic control. I think, but I'm probably wrong on that. But I was recently writing about date and time stuff and thinking about you know what is what's natural and what's contrived. And um, days are very natural. You know, we sleep once a day, you see the sunrise, you see the sunset, you know, that that's a regular cycle. Okay, you know, the length of the day that's that has sunlight changes over time. Every 24 hours you will have the sun directly over over your head. So that's a natural period of time. And likewise a year is a natural period of time, you know, going around the sun. And people have observed the seasons changing. What I don't know is the history of how months came to be. Um so you know you've got the the lunar cycle, but that doesn't necessarily well it doesn't necessarily impact our lives very much. Whereas you know as you know, all humans, daily life matters because we sleep and things, um, and tend to work during the daytime, and certainly from from you know ancient times farming and I guess hunting as well would depend on what time of year it is. I don't think much depended on what time of the month it was or you know, what 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 time it was within the lunar cycle. You know, having said which, obviously half the world's population do have a cycle that's roughly lunar um, in in length, but varies enough between different women and different you know, won't all be synchronized. So I don't think that sort of explains the use of months either. Um, so I don't know where months came from other than, well, a year is too long. Saying I'll meet you on day 200 isn't nearly as easy as saying I'll meet you on October the 12th. And I'm not, by the way, say in case anyone's trying to do the calculation, is, is October the 12th day 200? Probably not. Almost certainly not. Those were just two random bits of information. Entirely so I guess you'd have to go back and study the Julian and Gregorian calendars to see maybe where that came up from. Oh, well, I think the Julian calendar that predated the Gregorian calendar, you know, that's significantly, that's a late calendar compared with, I guess, Mayan calendars and all, all that kind of thing. You know, calendars have existed for a very, very long time. Uh -huh. And like the Hebrew calendar system does weird things, kind of funky weird things. But it would be interesting to know, you know, who first had the idea of splitting a year into months? I genuinely don't know that. So, you know, maybe yeah. listeners can do some research and let me know. That'd be very cool. But um, this this did also raise some interesting trivia that you kind of assume a year is going to be more than a month, right? Well, that's not quite true on Venus. The, the length of a Venetian day, or Venusian day, I'm not sure, is, I think, 116 days, 116 Earth days, whereas a Venusian year is 225 days. I, oh, I need to redo some of my... I had, I had thought that the year on Venus was about two-thirds of the length of the day, and I now think I'm wrong, just doing quick, quick searches... I'm making a note to well, myself. The day is two-thirds of the year. Yeah, no, I had genuinely thought it was the other... Yeah, no, I was right. I was right. So <laughs> on, I, I'm now looking at something else. One of these is going to be right. So it suggests here, on Venus, one rotation on its axis takes the equivalent of 243 Earth days, whereas the planet's orbit around the sun takes the equivalent of 225 Earth days. So that 
if that is correct, and I need to go go back and look at these different information sources that are giving radically different bits of information. But yeah, it it kind of makes sense on an astronomical basis that a year can last longer than a day. Sorry, shorter than a day. That something spins on its axis so slowly. Well, I think it goes all the way around the sun before it's done. It, isn't isn't Mercury um, tidal locked with the sun? So technically, they probably never have days. It is always sun. Uh, I don't know. Sunny or always night. That's interesting. You like the moon is locked to the earth. I think yeah, something under a certain size ratio or something is always tidal locked. I don't know. I don't know about anything about astronomy. I just, I just heard that fact once. So, so random internet search suggests well suggests various different things. Uh, it looks <laughs> well, like is one of them Wikipedia because Wikipedia. Uh, right. I'm always sure Wikipedia right. is there somewhere. <laughs> so, one place Wikipedia is suggesting that a day a year on Mercury is about. Um, 88 Earth days, but a day on Mercury is about twice as long. So you get two days per, two years per day. Go why? So, <laughs> yeah. And it kind that, of blows your mind. That, well, mm. it means suppose you've got a bunch of astronauts who decide to have a, you know, a poker game or whatever, and one of them says, see you tomorrow. Well, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> does that see you in nine hours or however long it is on I think well, it's Jupiter. Anyway, all, well, all if of you're, this. If you're using uh, one on Earth, it means one day. But if you're using uh, one on Mercury, it's a whole nother ballgame. Hey, exactly. So <laughs> it's, you know, we, we assume that tomorrow has a shared frame of reference, and it just doesn't. And in fact, it, even on, on Earth, it doesn't. You can imagine you're on a meeting, you're in a meeting, and maybe it's maybe I'm talking with someone in the US and it's really late for me in the UK and I'm about to go to bed. It's sort of 11 o'clock at night and I'm just signing off. And I know that I've got another meeting with the same person in eight hours time um, and an early morning meeting for me. But if they're eight hours behind me, which most of my colleagues are, so it was 3 p.m. for them, and the second meeting is 11 p.m., I can say, I'll see you tomorrow, because it's going to be my tomorrow, but it won't be there tomorrow. So even even just on Earth, uh, things get a bit weird. Yeah, and we're well, always... We get, we get that, though. <laughs> yeah, we're dealing with why sometimes, you know, being in the Southern <laughs> Hemisphere, you know, depending on we spring forward, they fall back, we... Yep. Uh, that back so it's a, like a two-hour swing depending on the time of the year yeah yeah and these days with the us and the uk slash eu change their clocks at different times so most of the year i'm eight hours out from my colleagues for some of the year it's seven hours and for some of the year it's nine hours um just because stuff happens <laughs> yeah you know, like us you know some states you know don't do time changing at all yeah like um, Arizona. Yeah. so your neighbor can be you know in a different time zone or one hour off one time and two hours off there's, another time there's but, one state i thought it was arizona but i'm not sure where you could without leaving the state you could draw a straight line within the state and if you go along that line you have to change your watch five times because there are various native american reservations some of which observe daylight same time some of which don't and there's one within another and all kinds of stuff yeah i and live they, in I, I live in idaho and i could drive straight south and switch <clears> time zones right and the fact that that's south rather than east or west is kind of weird <laughs> <laughs> you expect it if you go east or west that's fine but south really shouldn't make much odds yeah isn't time interesting it, it's fascinating <laughs> It's fascinating, and particularly dealing with it in code, because it's this sort of, it feels like it should be regimented, but it's it's so burdened with cultural baggage. And I've typically found, I've tended to find that it's the place where religion affects code the most, because most calendar systems, whether they have a religious background or whether it's just that the cultures that have adopted those calendar systems is associated with a particular religion. There is some, you know, some amount of religious 
baggage. So you, know, you look at the GUID format. You, know, you, you think, well, what could be religious about GUIDs? Well, the timestamp is based on, I think, 1572. I, I want, anytime I say these numbers, by the way, if it sounds like I'm smart, I'm just guessing. I think it's 1572. When the, when Rome switched to the Gregorian calendar system. So that was basically at the edict of Pope Gregory. So that's the Catholic Church decided our timestamp format in a way within, within GUIDs. Like, that's a weird relationship that you wouldn't have expected. <laughs> it's not clear to me why they decided to make that the epoch for timestamps in GUIDs anyway, to be honest. I don't think people were using GUIDs back then. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. I think we'll move on to uh, picks. So why? What's your pick this week? Hey, guys. So my pick this week is a YouTube video. It's something I saw a while ago, but I thought I'd bring it up again. It's basically just a guy, and he very simply explains how Bitcoin works. And he creates like a little JavaScript program that does it. And I thought it just kind of illustrated like very clearly how Bitcoin works. and in a way that basically even even I understood. So yeah, I thought I'd just use that as my pick today. So Bitcoin and blockchain? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's actually it's mainly about blockchain, not really about Bitcoin specifically. But yeah, it was just it, it, it just explained it in really easy language. So and then there's a JavaScript program that literally implements a blockchain. So cool. <laughs> oh, great, great. No. All right, Caleb, what's your pick? Yeah. So my pick this week is actually it's a service called Backblaze. And I've been using them for a couple of years, but we have a media server here at home and I've got some of my source code on that server and movies and audiobooks and all that stuff. Right. And I'm not running raid just because I'm lazy and don't want to have to have, you know, four, six terabyte hard drives and, and, you know, get a small portion of that. So anyway, Backblaze for a hundred dollars a year, um, you have unlimited storage with them. So, uh, I've installed it on my media server and uh, every day it actually takes the new files on my server and backs up to Backblaze. And I think I've got six, more than six terabytes up there and the amount is unlimited is a hundred bucks a year. So I have, I, I have used it. <laughs> I've got my money's worth. It's not home server that you're running, right? Yeah. Yep. Home server. Yep. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. Do you have something you want to let people know about? So I would love to come and say, you know, this was carefully thought out, but it was, I was warned that I should have a pick. But in line with what we talked about last time about drum kits or whatever, um, I would say this is a listener-oriented pick. Find whatever personal project um, you kind of put down a while ago and visit that GitHub URL. Have another look at that code. And I dare you, just find what you want to do next. So you know, rather than look at someone else's blog post or someone else's video, look at some of your own stuff and hopefully get inspired to take it to the next step, which is a bit of a cheaty way of, I don't really have a URL to give you, but you know, hopefully you've got one for yourself. <laughs> well, our, our listeners are, are imaginative people. Challenge. So. <laughs> yeah, they're imaginative <laughs> people. I'm hashtag sure they come John, up with something. Hashtag John Skeet Challenge. Yep. And make it. <laughs> Is going viral. All right. So my pick is a website where this person will actually make a cartoon version of yourself. So it's I've seen a lot of people out there making their little avatars being, you know, just drawings and things like that, that of themselves. So I went out and did some research and I actually paid for one of these and she does a really good job. It's called the cartoonist.me and it's only about 25 bucks and you just send her a picture that you'd like to make turned into a cartoon and she does a real good professional job at it. And you can also do it as a couple. So it's a little more expensive if you're going to do a couple or a full body. And then she also do your pet. So she's got all sorts of different things that she can do for you and does a great so job. So that's where so, your, uh, your new logo came from. Yeah, huh? my new one is, yep. Oh, it's from the cartoonist.me. Okay. Sounds cool. like a great like 
birthday or Valentine's or anniversary present. Absolutely. Yeah. They can yeah, do corporate versions or yeah, they could do. She has uh, examples of weddings, things like that on there. So check it so out. I would be intrigued as to whether if Kayla, Sean and I all submitted one to her, we'd be able to tell the difference. You know, I'm just looking on the screen. And we're all in glasses uh, with, you know, a certain lack of hair. Um, <laughs> it would be really interesting to see whether the cartoons were significantly different. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be that would we, be interesting. We we should do an adventures in .dot net one actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just send us all free photos and superimpose into one single one. I like it. I like it. We want to reach out to you. What's the best way to get in touch? To me, was that? Yeah. So probably Twitter is probably the easiest thing. So I'm just John Skeet on Twitter. My email address, if you want to email me, is on my Stack Overflow profile. But there is. There's a link there as well to say, before you email me, please read this and see whether what you're thinking of asking me wouldn't be better as a Stack Overflow question. Um, and you know, also, please don't ask Stack Overflow questions on Twitter. Um, people ask technical questions like, I can't give a, you can't ask a decent question in 260 characters or however many, 280. And I definitely can't give a decent answer in 280. Strangely enough, there's a site for that. Please ask on Stack Overflow instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, right. yeah. If you have other right. reasons to reach out to me, then uh, then my email. And that's spelled J O N S K E E T. All right, that's right. Caleb, you on Twitter now, right? I am. I um, I'm getting with the the uh, the millennials. You know, trying to keep up. I decided I'd <laughs> Gen Z. I yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Whatever it is now, <laughs> I decided I I would I would brush off a very old. Uh, Twitter and change change my handle so it's now uh, Caleb Wells codes so feel free to to ping me all right and if our listeners want to reach out to the show you can get in touch with me I am at .net superhero thanks guys and thanks John yeah. wow yeah John this was awesome my pleasure we'll have to so, do it again uh, in another six and- months to a year year yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely Let's talk about yeah. There you go. Another <laughs> epoch. <laughs> or another uh, rotation of Venus? Uh, maybe. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great show, guys. We'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, Bye all. all. Bye-bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.